Welcome to the Australian Centre for the Moving Image and to Live in the Studio, uh, where we sink our teeth into um, all things TV, past and present. Um, tonight we are... Uh, is the polite word rehashing? Revamping. Rerunning? That's the TV word for it. We are rerunning with... Uh, a little bit of new stuff, uh, Lovable Murderers with Martin Pedler. Uh, so Martin is the film critic for Australia's Triple J magazine and the comic book columnist for the international literary site Book Slut. He won an award for, from the Australian Film Critics Association in 2009 and is currently competing a PhD on superhero stories at the University of Melbourne. He has previously spoken at Acme on vampires, zombies, Twin Peaks, as well as recently being cast away with Eddie Perfect in our Desert Island Flicks program. So Martin and I have worked together a few times and I just discovered tonight for apparently the third time in a row that he used to write for Rove. So he's a, he's a, um, he's a funny chap. Uh, Martin is... Uh, <laughs> if you like Rove... So Martin is um, also the writer of the feature film Exit, which will premiere later this year. So please welcome Martin. Um, hi, everyone, and thanks for coming tonight. Um, so I wanted to start tonight back in 2006 and the first episode of Dexter on Showtime, back before we'd had five seasons to get used to Dexter Morgan, the blood splatter expert and vigilante serial killer. The show opens with Dexter in serial killer mode, um, you know, cruising for victims, cre creepy voiceover, plastic cheated killing rooms and so on. And only after do we see Dexter in his likeable everyman mode, pretending to be normal with his workmates, his family and his poor girlfriend. And I think everything that's interesting about Dexter as a character and as a show exists between these two points. Um, so when there's the first real scare that Dexter's going to be caught by the police, it's about halfway through first season, I was shocked that I was already thinking, you know, no, Dexter, avoid the police, live to kill again. Um, so tonight's opening question is this, what is wrong with me? And what is wrong with you all too? Why, are we so, why is it so easy to give our affections to men and women who do terrible things on screen? Um, for the first few seasons of Dexter, Dexter claims that he's empty and unfeeling, but it's not true. Um, even in the early episodes, Dexter is longing for something. Um, that's why he's so excited when the ice-struck killer starts toying with him. He even puts the severed head of the Barbie doll um, used to taunt him on his key ring so he can look at it throughout the day. Um, Dexter wants to be accepted for what he is, which is a killer. And more, he wants to be respected for being a killer, even admired for being a killer. Um, and this is spectacularly displayed in the fantasy sequence that ends season one. So what better clip to kick off tonight than with a parade? Dearly damaged Deborah, she's here to face what's left of the monster, spit on his carcass, mourn him. She's in hiding now too. Harry's daughter will be damned if she lets anyone see what she's suffering inside. That's her tragedy. My tragedy is that I killed the one person I didn't have to hide from. And I'm the only one who mourns him.
Everyone else would probably thank me if they knew I was the one who drained him of his life. Good job in there, Dex. You sliced him up good. In fact, deep down, I'm pretty sure they'd appreciate a lot of my work. I'm going to take out the trash. Thanks, buddy. feel like to walk in full sunlight, my darkness revealed, my shadow self embraced. Yeah, they see me. I'm one of them. In their darkest dreams. I swear that when I saw that for the first time at home, I nearly burst into applause. Um, for those who are wondering, I am going to tread pretty carefully with spoilers tonight, so you should all be safe, even as we discuss the later seasons of Dexter. Now, society's obsession with psychos and serial killers is nothing new. You can pick up any friendly-looking supermarket tabloid and find celebrity gossip and dieting tips and instructions on how to keep your man happy, and then out of nowhere there's a true crime section full of grisly murder details. Um, reading about murder is treated with the same gravity as reading about someone's liposuction, though it is true that both murder and liposuction involve stabbing motions, so make of that what you will. Um, early on in Dexter, um, the lieutenant tries to convince someone to confess by offering him fame. Fascination with serial killers is an American pastime, she says, You've got groupie housewives, magazine profiles, maybe even a summer blockbuster movie all waiting for you. And certainly the last couple of decades have given us dozens and dozens of stories about serial killers, like Millennium, Profiler, Criminal Minds and The Inside. Um, and that's just TV shows. Um, for a while, in fact, serial killers revitalised the entire thriller industry. In 1991, Silence of the Lambs made serial killers seem like classy mainstream entertainment and um, in 1995, Seven convinced screenwriters everywhere that all you needed was a gimmick, Seven Deadly Sins, Copycat Crimes, or whatever, and the script would basically write itself. And um, murder is everywhere in popular culture. Law and Order's formula almost always begins with a random New Yorker finding a corpse. If you do the maths, it's at least 20 seasons, 22 episodes a season. That's 440 bodies in Law and Order alone. That's a mountain of corpses that any killer would be proud of. And that's not even counting the spin-offs. Add in CSI, Cold Case, Midsummer Murders, and so on and so on. Even quiet little towns like Mount Thomas in Australia in Blue Heelers rack up a pretty decent death count over the years. Um, the Wall Street Journal recently had a story on TV's legion of what they call corpse actors, the bottom of the actum totem pole, as one extra put it. The article found that while the Screen Actors Guild doesn't keep figures on corpse roles, currently seven out of the ten most-watched shows on American television regularly use corpse actors. Um, and all those corpses need more and more gimmicks to keep the murders that made them that way interesting as well. This leads to what the British satirist Charlie Brooker calls artisan killers, and I can't explain this nearly as entertainingly as he does, so here's a clip from his show, TV Ruined Your Life. 
The most frightening crime of all is, of course, murder. Oh, God! And there's no danger of a TV murder shortage anytime soon. Not that regular murderers are dangerous enough for the televised world where they're routinely depicted as criminal geniuses playing a diabolical game of cat and mouse with a troubled police detective wearing the worried expression of a bloodhound opening a court summons. Yes, according to television, most killers are artisan killers whose every offering deserves to be analysed for literary merit and they're markedly more vicious than almost any of their real-life equivalents. Take the maniac running right in the inaugural episode of The Dark Moody Wire in the Blood, which featured a madman who specialised in creating diabolical implements of torture in the most upsetting Blue Peter makes ever captured on tape. Oh, I've got one of those, actually. It's the Ikea Spikensit. Like the best TV monsters, this killer also sent tapes of his victims to taunt the police. We've just received this from the post from addressed to Bradfield CID. Hi. I'm Police Constable Damien O'Connell. Hi, Damien. How's it going? <laughs> oh, not so good, then. Ah, typical police sitting on their arse. <laughs> Okay, so who is responsible for this obsession with murder in fiction? For a start, I think we should generalise wildly and blame Agatha Christie. Now, murder, especially on TV, isn't like other crimes. It's almost considered victimless, even when the victim is lying right there on the floor. Murder in fiction is often clean, simple and bloodless. Um, I've always been surprised how murder kicks off so many mum and dad friendly ABC dramas. When I was a kid, I would get nervous every time there was a hint of sex on TV and my parents were in the room. But a corpse, no problem at all. So in summary... And I think the perfect example of this logic is Murder, She Wrote. Murder, She Wrote has murder in the title. And yet... Somehow, it's the most family-friendly show you could imagine with the charming Jessica Fletcher quietly solving crimes with common sense and folksy wisdom. Um, the fact that she's a famous mystery novelist links her back to this Agatha Christie tradition. But think about it. How many bodies has Jessica Fletcher seen? Every town she visits, every holiday she takes. She must walk into a room not wanting to look, just being like, please, not this time. Not this time, not again. So... Agatha Christie then can be considered emblematic of how murder gets transformed from a crime of passion to a happy little mystery to be solved. The victims aren't really people, people with lives and loved ones, they're, they're puzzles. And in a response to this kind of fiction in 1950, Raymond Chandler wrote an essay called The Simple Art of Murder. Um, he wailed on the way that murder had become basically Sudoku with corpses, and he praised the writing of Dashiell Hammett, saying that Hammett gave murder back to the kind of people who commit it for reasons and not just to provide a corpse. Fiction, though, always has a motive for murder because killing is such a great structural gimmick for storytelling. You kill somebody and suddenly everything is in motion. Stakes are raised, the friends of the corpse are offering up big helpful chunks of exposition and there's a murderer to be caught for dramatic tension. Um, the same principle was applied to dinner parties for a while in real life. Do people remember how to host a murder game that appeared in the mid-80s? So you'd all be given characters and clues that you had to read out at different points of the meal until the mystery was solved. Um, yes, we had nothing to say to each other at dinner parties in the 80s. It was terribly sad. <laughs> I do think, though, it's an interesting thought experiment to plug other crimes 
into story titles instead of the word murder and see how they instantly become socially unacceptable. On an episode of the radio show This American Life, a woman talked about how her relationship with popular culture changed after her father had been murdered. Okay, this is one of those things that you probably have never heard, and then uh, as soon as somebody tells you, you're like, right, of course. You know how um, murder figures into so much of American pop culture on crime shows and thrillers and video games and all kinds of stuff? Well, if you knew somebody who actually got murdered, turns out you might not be into that stuff so much. I can't watch Law & Order. <laughs> I'm no. not going to watch Law & Order. Or play Clue. Or, you know, go to a, a murder mystery dinner theater. Rachel Howard's dad was killed when she was 10. And as an adult, she's met a lot of people whose family members were killed. Now she says that some of them love shows like CSI and Murder, She Wrote, any kind of murder show. Officially, organizations like the group Parents of Murdered Children take a stand against murderous entertainment. You know, they have, um, at the Parents of Murdered Children conference, they have certain presentations really down to give you a little punch in the gut. And one of them is that they have a whole one on this um, murder mystery, you know, dinners. And um, the, the way that they always do it is they say, let's, let's just pretend that you were going to have a, um, a rape mystery dinner. And you were going <laughs> to show up, and the, <laughs> the rule of the game was going to be that someone's been raped. And we're all going to find the rapist. Yeah. That wouldn't go over. Nobody <laughs> would do it. Everybody would feel that that was deeply distasteful. Yeah, and creepy. <laughs> yeah, creepy. Why would you want to put yourself in that role? I think she has a point, right? Um, I can pretty much guarantee none of you would be here tonight if this talk was called Lovable Rapists. <clears throat> um, anyway, at this point in the evening... You're probably thinking, but Martin, these aren't snuff films. These people aren't really dead. You know that, right? They're actors, and they'll be playing Angry Cyclist Number 3 on The Mentalist next week. And uh, to that I would say, God, you can be patronising sometimes. And yes, obviously that is true. Um, Dexter often reminds us that it's all in fun as well, and it has a number of tricks to do this. The awesome credit sequence is one. I still think it's one of the best credit sequences on TV. Um, not only because of the serial killer slash breakfast montage, but um, little details like the ding as Dexter walks outside and almost looks at the camera, which is kind of like a sonic wink that we get the joke that he's in on as well. Um, and when the character of Dexter isn't having fun, the show still seems to be. Um, Dexter at one point describes one of the ice truck killer's crimes as dramatic, cryptic and playful, and I'd argue that's a good way to describe the show too at its best. Um, so, so far I've been talking about why killings are entertaining, but what about the killers? Um, so to start with, if you're someone who laughed at that lovable rapist's picture before, first of all, shame on you, and you're second, you're probably already aware of one of the reasons why killers are so appealing. Um, they're people to whom the rules of society no longer apply. Take it from Darwin Mayflower, the villain from the notorious cinematic bomb Hudson Hawk. He says, history, tradition and culture are not concepts. These are trophies I keep in my den as paperweights. So, in general, heroes are the ones who stop things in stories. They stop evil plans. They stop evil schemes rather than start things. Heroes give speeches about why things are wrong and why we shouldn't do them. And that's rarely as interesting as watching the wrong things being done. 
One of my favourite moments in all of Buffy the Vampire Slayer comes in season four where Buffy, the good slayer, and Faith, the bad, rebellious and occasionally murderous slayer, swap bodies. Um, so in this clip, it's Faith in Buffy's body, everyone's keeping up so far, um, first talking to Buffy's unaware mother and then talking to her, her own unfamiliar reflection. Faith. Why do you think she's like that? Well, you know, she's a nut job. I just don't understand what could drive a person to that kind of behavior. Well, how do you know she got drove? I mean, maybe she likes being that way. I'll never believe that. I think she's horribly unhappy. Well, it could be things are looking up. I mean, a little stint in the pokey, show her the error of her ways. I'm sure there's some big old Bertha just waiting to shower her ripe little self with affection. Buffy? I'm sorry, Mom. It's just, when I think about how she might have hurt you, I just, I can't stand it. Sorry. No, I'm just sore from the fight. I've missed you. Because I haven't visited, right? I knew it. I know how it is. You've got so much in your life now. I'm a busy little beaver. College and all. Of course. But, um, maybe we could spend some time together soon? Some night when I'm not being held hostage by a raving psychotic. Count on it. I'm gonna take a bath. So I think Faith is right. We often want to see our heroes stop preaching about what's right and just cut loose, damn it. Um, even on the objectionably wholesome Smallville, um, the show regularly exposes young teenage Clark Kent, the, the proto-Superman, to red kryptonite. Now, unlike red, green kryptonite, which kills him, red kryptonite turns him into the bad boy version of himself. Sometimes he even wears a leather jacket. That's right, a leather jacket. Anyway, the writer of the original Scarface movie from 1932 knew this problem well. He said that in his perfect world, the thing to do would be to skip the heroes and heroines and to write a movie containing only villains and boards. 
Um, that way he would not have to tell any lies. Because he was writing in the era of the Hayes Code, though, there were very strict rules about the way villains had to be treated in the movies. The studio added two scenes to Scarface without the input of director Howard Hawks to avoid claims that they glorified the criminal, including a newspaper man who was shown complaining about the glorification of criminals right there in the film itself. It's very meta. So take that, Scream franchise. Um, why would this writer's hypothetical perfect movie only include villains? I think we can call this the Joker problem. When Tim Burton's Batman became a massive blockbuster in 1989, every single review talked about how Jack Nicholson's Joker stole the show. Batman is fueled by grief and misery, whereas the Joker is having a really great time. Or look at Hannibal Lecter. While everyone else in Silence of the Lambs is busy looking stern, professional or freaked out, Lecter seems to be having the time of his life, even when he's locked in a perspex cell. Um, so villains have more fun, and they're often funnier as well. There's a long-standing tradition of having characters turn into comedians the moment they're revealed as being the killer. Um, comedy equals crazy, apparently. Perhaps Jack Torrance in The Shining can be blamed for some of this with his pop culture quips like Here's Johnny as he went on his murderous rampage. Um, and Freddy Krueger from Nightmare on Elm Street became more of a quippy one-liner machine with each passing film. Um, this is the first thing I thought of when I saw the poster for Christopher Nolan's The Dark Knight and its tagline, Why So Serious? Admittedly, though, I think Heath Ledger's Joker doesn't seem to be having as much fun as Jack Nicholson's Joker. Um, Heath Ledger's Joker wears his clown on the outside rather than the inside. Um, and then I got to thinking, are classic slasher villains like Michael Myers from Halloween and Jason from Friday the 13th having fun? It's hard to tell. Um, so I asked Alexandra Helen Nicholas about this over the phone. She's a horror film historian whose first book called Rape Revenge, A Critical Study, will be out in 2011. And I asked her first the old question, when we watch a slasher film, are we hoping for the potential victim to get away or for the killer to succeed? pleasures I think of the slasher film is that there's a tension between those two very pleasures um, in that we don't have to choose one or the other. Um, there's a, a writer on uh, slasher film called Carol Clover who came up with this wonderful phrase and she says that in slasher film we're both Little Red Riding Hood and The Wolf um, and if you think about the famous um, first person camera shots that mark so many slasher films you know that we see the killing from the killer's perspective um, that, that's really titillating and that's a perspective that we're not usually granted so that we have this kind of perverse or subverted pleasure coming from the fact that on one hand, sure, we, we, we want the final girl to win, we want Jamie Lee Curtis to be okay, we know that, that all the kind of the, the slutty cheerleaders are all going to get killed but we know that the final girl, our main kind of female character, the babysitter, probably a virgin, usually a little bit tomboyish, not always but often, um, we know that she will be okay. So we want her to be okay, but at the same time, we get such a kick out of seeing things, literally, in many cases, from the killer's perspective. So that our kind of loyalties are divided is one of the um, the real places, I think, that, that the slasher film really hinges around and hinges on. Freddie's a rock star. Jason's a rock star. Actually, Freddie's a game show host, but that's another conversation altogether. Freddie Krueger's having fun. I don't think anybody would dare challenge him upon this question. 
Um, but is Michael Myers having fun? Is Jason having fun? I don't know. They're too enigmatic. They're too hidden from me. They're literally hidden from me. I can't see their faces. To see their their smiles of delight, you know, their, their fun-filled eyes, I can't actually see that. But certainly I feel that they are, they are having pleasure, that they are, that they are find, finding pleasure in the acts that they are doing. And horror is kind of interesting, I guess, as a whole, in that, that this question of fun can lead into pleasure, but pleasure is also something that's quite separate. I think that we like the titillation. I don't think that, that means that we only like. And, and, I mean, you talked about teenagers having posters up on the wall. Um, when, and Carol Fogel points this out, when we talk about the kind of slasher films that I'm talking about from the kind of 78, maybe 82, um, we're talking about the assumption, we're, we're assuming that we're talking about a mostly male, mostly adolescent audience. Um, and Clover's actually talked a lot about how amazing it is that these boys do have their tension split between a not hot or, you know, not, not, um, not that Jamie Lee Curtis isn't hot, but that she's not the typical kind of woman that, that teenage boys would go kind of crazy for. But the, the, the kind of pop starification of Freddie and Jason and people like that comes again from the split pleasure. They, they love these guys because they know they're not meant to. And I think in, in there is the essence of, of the pleasure of the slasher film. We, go, we hope the girl's okay. We, we hope that our final girl will be okay. And of course in contemporary slasher films, so films like Wolf Creek and High Tension, um, in particular, we have our um, our assumptions about the, the final girl are really manipulated and really really flaunted and played with and thrown back at us. But in the particular cycle that I'm talking about, they're really quite locked in. So it is again that split pleasure of going for Red Riding Hood and the wolf. Of course, you're going to put the poster of the wolf on your wall because the wolf's the one that you're not meant to be kind of on the side of. I love that idea. If you're going for both Red Riding Hood and The Wolf, of course you put the poster of The Wolf on your wall. Who wants a poster of Red Riding Hood? Um, I also only noticed them for the first time. The, the looking through the killer's eyes gimmick means at one point he's actually doing this. Ah, look at the knife. <laughs> Which isn't quite as scary when you realise that fact. Um, anyway, I think there's one other major reason to admire these sort of killers. They've got a great work ethic. They never stop, they never complain, and they return for sequel after sequel. Um, and other villains work hard too. You know who I always felt sorry for in the movie? Poor Hans Gruber in Die Hard. Now, he planned a crime so perfect that years later, after the 9-11 attacks, newspapers ran stories about how the attacks seemed like something out of a movie. And many of these newspapers said it seemed like that something like the terrorists in Die Hard would do. They weren't terrorists in Die Hard. That was the whole trick. They were thieves pretending to be terrorists. His plan was so good, it has fooled real-life journalists years later. <laughs> um, anyway, all that careful planning. And who stops hands? John McClane, who happens to be there on vacation, not wearing shoes. It, it, it really just doesn't seem fair. Um, I know I often find myself going for the wrong character in movies and TV, and I know I'm not alone in this. On the sitcom How I Met Your Mother, um, Barney, played by the awesome Neil Patrick Harris, explains who he considers to be the real hero of The Karate Kid. Well, Barney, it looks like your mom kept your childhood bedroom just the way you left it. Yeah, it sure is a big poster of The Karate Kid above your bed. Hey, Karate Kid's a great movie. It's the story of a hopeful young karate enthusiast whose dreams and moxie 
take him all the way to the All-Valley Karate Championship. Of course, sadly, he loses in the final round of that nerd kid. But he learns an important lesson about gracefully accepting defeat. Wait, when you watch The Karate Kid, you actually root for that mean blonde boy? No, I root for the scrawny loser from New Jersey who barely even knows karate. When I watch The Karate Kid, I root for The Karate Kid, Johnny Lawrence from the Cobra Kai Dojo. Get your head out of your ass, Lily. Let me get this straight. You're really telling me that when you watch The Karate Kid, you don't root for Danielson? Nope. Who do you root for in Die Hard? Hans Gruber, charming international bandit. At the end, he died hard. He's the title character. <laughs> okay, The Breakfast Club. Mm. The teacher running detention. He's the only guy in the whole movie wearing a suit. I got one. Terminator. What's the name of the movie, Robin? Who among us didn't shed a tear when his little red eye went out at the end and he didn't get to kill those people? I'm sorry, that movie. I am never watching a movie with you ever again. <laughs> they didn't even try to help him. Okay, so one other reason why we might want to admire an on-screen killer, not that I'm saying you should, but I'm saying you might, is that they do what we want to do. I think um, everyone's had a flicker of a blood-soaked happy place when arguing with someone in their head at least once or twice. And so these killers often provide a violent kind of wish fulfilment. No rules, no limits, no ordering off the lunch menu if you really wanted breakfast, like defense in Falling Down. Um, and I'm aware at this point that I've made being a killer sound kind of great so far. So I'm going to backpedal a little and say that it's not all fun and games. Um, there's a moving scene in Gross Point Blank, which is a fantastic comedy starring John Cusack as a hitman who attends his high school reunion. Um, he explains why he stood up his girlfriend at prom all those years ago. It's because he realised that deep down he just wanted to kill somebody and couldn't be part of society anymore. And speaking of sadness, let's look at one of the more obvious inspirations for Dexter, um, someone whose business card speaks for itself. Um, Dexter obviously feels some connection with Patrick Bateman. We see that it's even an alias Dexter uses at one point in first season of the show. And Patrick Bateman sure seems to be having fun, um, none more so than in this clip near the beginning of the movie version directed by Mary Harron. You like Huey Lewis on the news? They're okay. Their early work was a little too new wave for my taste. But when sports came out in 83, I think they really came into their own, commercially and artistically. The whole album has a clear, crisp sound and a new sheen of consummate professionalism that really gives the songs a big boost. to Elvis Costello, but I think Huey has a far more bitter, cynical sense of humor. Hey, Alan, Yes, Alan? Why are the copies of the style section on the page? Do you have a dog, a little chow or something? <laughs> no, Alan. Is that a raincoat? Yes, it is. 
In 87, Huey released this. Four, the most accomplished album. I think their undisputed masterpiece is Hip to Be Square. A song so catchy, most people probably don't listen to the lyrics. But they should, because it's not just about the pleasures of conformity and the importance of trends. It's also a personal statement about the band itself. Hey, Paul! Okay, so this version of Brett Easton Ellis's novel has a lot of fans, but I think it misses something really important from the book. Um, American Psycho, the novel, is an incredibly sad read. Sure, Bat- Patrick Bateman may walk around with the severed head of a prostitute on his erection, but does it make him happy? Um, the book, in fact, opens with a quote about manners and etiquette, and I think that's the key. Patrick Bateman is trying to be a real man, successful and popular and confident, He's just confused about what that actually means. He's nearly driven to tears by the fact he might not have a table at the right restaurant or that he might have the wrong modern art on his walls. Um, I think this is a variation of the same role that Dexter plays in the TV show. Um, Dexter pretends to be a normal boyfriend and brother and workmate. And I know everyone has smiled their way through a terrible party or had to fake sadness at someone's story that they didn't really give a damn about. So Dexter's fakeness is, in fact, what makes him seem genuine and relatable to us a lot of the time. The movie of American Psycho, though, looks great. It really captures that shiny, business card-obsessed 80s sheen, and it takes great pleasure in the surfaces of things and how those surfaces look with blood splattered across them, which leads me to my next point. That's probably overstating things. Let's go with that. Violence looks awesome. Um, Violence, bodies and blood are almost inherently spectacular, and not just, hey, look at that plastic bag, isn't it profound beautiful? Um, (laughs) Dexter has close-ups of blood spatter pictures behind his workplace and they look like contemporary art. Um, And think about CSI and its endless spin-offs. They turn the body into a roller coaster of special effects and we zoom around and through them like a forensic roller coaster. So I think violent movies often have a more subtle version of what filmmaker and critic Francois Truffaut said about war films, that it's impossible to make an anti-war film no matter how hard you try because movies make war look so good that they automatically become a celebration. While we're speaking of the spectacular, though, I did want to remind you that on TV, serial killers look like this. In real life, they look like this. Um, No offence, fellas, I'm sure you have great personalities. So how do we enjoy all of this awesome-looking killing without losing our souls in the process? Just like Dexter's father, Harry, had to give his son... Death-filled movies and TV need to give us a strict moral framework. Um, It's something that will provide the right context for whatever horrible actions we're about to see. 
Um, I defer to the wisdom of Arnold Schwarzenegger in True Lies here, a movie so decadent about death it uses a nuclear explosion as a romantic backdrop for a kiss. When he's asked if he ever killed anyone, he says yes, but they were all bad. Ah, bad people. Um, Where would we be without bad people? So this is the essence of Harry's code. Dexter can only kill those who deserve it. Without this, it would be too easy to dismiss him as a psychopath and a monster. And a watered-down version of this same code has been used to let us enjoy the antics of anti-heroes for decades. As Omar from The Wire would put it, it's okay so long as you only kill people who are in the game. Um, Omar is also someone who seems to be having more fun than anyone else on the show. And in fact, he seems like a character from a completely different show than everyone else on The Wire. So this notion of keeping violence in the game was often the loophole for Tony Sopranos and his mobsters, so long as they were killing other mobsters, everything was fine, and for most of the lovable hitman movies that became so popular in the 1990s. I often think that real hitmen must have hated that era of cinema. They were always shown as being giving up their guns at the first sign of love. How annoying for them. Anyway, if these people kill someone, the idea is that they probably deserved it. And this is one of the most important things to remember if you're considering becoming a lovable murderer in real life. You have to kill the right people. Don't listen to Johnny Cash. You can't shoot a man in Reno just to watch him die. (laughs) Out. So, luckily, though, I think the right people, at least in fiction, is a pretty wide category. In the sequel to Silence of the Lambs, 2001's Hannibal, Hannibal Lecter turns from a terrifying genius into a kind of cultural vigilante, He kills a musician just to improve the overall sound of the orchestra. And he says he prefers, when possible, to only eat the rude. Um, They even make sure we know that the disfigured victim who wants revenge on him in the film was a pedophile. So we feel okay about rooting for Hannibal Lecter instead. Anthony Hopkins actually described Lecter in an interview as the Robin Hood of killers. Or what about JD from the hit comedy Heathers? It's fun to watch JD and Veronica kill homophobic jocks and popular girls because we all have those lingering teenage resentments that convince us they deserve it. Um, I'd say, though, the recent Heathers-ish film, Jennifer's Body, made a bad miscalculation about this, though. Here we got to see the beautiful and popular Megan Fox killing her classmates, who seem quite nice. Watching the beautiful and popular violently destroy those around them isn't fun, That's just high school, and so there was nothing to enjoy. Um, Less lovable killers, though, also have moral codes. Think about John Doe in Seven. Seven's influence didn't also only make serial killers feel like they needed a gimmick. It also was a villain using his crimes to preach, to try and make the world a better place. And you can draw a direct line from John Doe to Jigsaw, star of the seemingly endless Saw franchise. He just wants to teach people about themselves and make them appreciate life a little bit more. Um, If John Doe is a twisted sort of Sunday school teacher, Jigsaw is like a bizarro world Dr Phil. Um, My favourite joke about all of this sort of torturous logic is by Dan Harmon, who's the man behind the very funny show Community, which you should all be watching if you're not. He once joked about pitching a show that was about a do-gooder child molester who only molests other child molesters. (laughs) Um, And I think one of the most interesting takes on this kind of moral framework is in the new Australian film Snowtown about the serial killer John Bunting and the Bodies in Barrels murders from the 1990s. Um, 
Bunting claims to be a friendly vigilante who's keeping the neighbourhood safe from pedophiles and perverts, and slowly it becomes obvious that there's something much darker driving his desire to kill. Watch Snowtown with Dexter in mind, and it's a really fascinating comparison. I will also ruin the movie for you now by saying he's kind of like an evil David Brent from The Office in the film, and now I've said that, you won't be able to forget it. Um, Anyway, once we decide that some people deserve killing, the whole game changes. We now open up a whole new contingent of violent men who are killers instead of murderers. The men who do what needs to be done for the sake of the rest of us. The men who, it's there because of them we get to enjoy our TV and flat whites and talks on popular culture because they exist and are willing to do what's right. Um, It might be best summed up by the end of The Searchers, the classic Western, where John Wayne's Ethan has to walk away from the family he's helped reunite. He can't be part of the happy reunion inside the homestead. He's got too much blood on his hands to re-enter the civilization he helped save. And I think this helps explain America's favourite torturer, Jack Bauer. Jack Bauer was a man so tough that he had an entire internet meme about how tough he was until that no-good Chuck Norris came and stole all the jokes for himself. Um, In its heyday, 24 was actually so popular and so influential, its producers were asked to tone down the torture by the US military. Now, I could have picked a zillion torture scenes from the show, but instead I thought we'd go with a quieter scene from season seven in which Jack Bauer discusses why he does what he does no matter what the consequences. I don't know what to do. I can't tell you what to do. I've been wrestling with this one my whole life. I I see 15 people held hostage on the bus Everything else goes out the window. I will do whatever it takes to save them, and I mean whatever it takes. I guess maybe I thought if I save them, I save myself. Do you regret anything that you did today?
So in his head, he knows that the rule of law is more important, but in his heart, he'll torture that guy if he needs to. And that's the decision he's made. So Jack Bauer, like Clint Eastwood's iconic Dirty Harry, is someone who thinks that some people deserve to die. And within the reality of the show, that is always, always correct. Um, it's interesting that the ticking time bomb excuse they always use, the, oh, my God, there's a bomb going to go off excuse, um, is used to justify torture. One, it's because of the ticking clock gimmick that 24 always uses. And two, it's because the hypothetical ticking time bomb reasoning is used to justify torture in the real world as well, and it's often just another kind of hypothetical storytelling. It's much easier to justify your moral choices in a world of fiction rather than one of reality. I think that's why in real life I'm a bleeding-heart left-wing anti-capital punishment crybaby, but suddenly in fiction I'm like, go Jack Bauer, torture that guy. Um, so I asked Dr Jessica Wolfendale about the difference between Dexter Morgan and Jack Bauer. They both have impressive body counts, they both work outside of the law, and they both seem to enjoy torture a little bit too much. Um, Jessica is the Assistant Professor of Philosophy at West Virginia University, and she's the author of the book Torture and the Military Profession. Well, Stecker's motivation is different from Jack Bauer. So Jack Bauer is a kind of, you know, typical, the outsider, the renegade hero, who the state doesn't have the wherewithal or the courage to actually do what needs to be done to protect innocent people from harm. So Jack Bauer is the one who takes on this task, this terrible task, of, of torturing people to find out information. So Jack Bauer's motivation is portrayed as being purely altruistic, really. Like, he doesn't get any pleasure from these acts of torture and killing. And indeed, what makes him a hero is precisely the fact that he knows these things are bad. So if he was doing it out of pleasure, he wouldn't be a hero because his motivation would be just identical to the motivation of a kind of sadistic torturer who tortures for the hell of it. So what makes him the hero is the fact that he's doing something that he thinks is wrong, that he thinks is bad, and that's what makes him the hero because he's, he's got the courage to do what he thinks is wrong to save us all. Um, Dexter is less clear because Dexter does get pleasure from killing. So this is why Dexter is in some way the more interesting character because on the one hand, his motive for killing those people is because those people are killers, but his motive for killing per se is because he likes to kill. So his choice of victims is determined to some degree by you know, his belief in, in preventing harm to innocence and that makes him similar to Jack Bauer in that respect, a kind of noble hero doing what justice fails to do or the state fails to do. But on the other hand, we know that, you know, if he wasn't killing those people, he'd be killing someone else because he wants to kill. So his motivation is mixed in a way that Jack Bowers is not, or at least the way Jack Bowers' motivation is portrayed to be. I mean, again, I think Dexter's appeal is both in the fact that he is a psychopath, so he wants to kill, and that's made clear from the very first season. He has a desire to kill, and his father trains him to channel that desire in a particular way. But what's interesting is the desire kind of pre predates the the killings. So his appeal, I think, to the audience is the fact that he acknowledges his desire and doesn't try and hide it, and that is what gives him some of this appeal as a person to whom the rules just don't apply. So he has that freedom. I think that's what's appealing about characters like kind of Lecter, who's just a straightforward psychopath, is that he he's the appeal of that sort of amoralist. Someone who's just like, yeah, I know there are moral constraints, but I just don't see them applying to me. So I think he has that appeal. But then what makes a difference in, in Dexter's term is that the people he kill are people that many people believe deserve to die. So 
typically murder by definition is unjustified killing. So it would be a sort of tautology to talk about a justified murder. What Dexter seems to be doing is to be killing people in order to protect the innocent. Well, that's the kind of just the rationale that he gives for the, the people that he kills are people who've murdered other people. So he's appealing there to this sort of common idea that if you kill someone, you've kind of forfeited your right to life. So if we kill you, we're not murdering you because we're not violating any of your rights. You no longer have any right to live. Um, but also, I think the additional justification in Dexter's case, or at least the justification he gives us, is that these are people who pose a threat to other people. So they've killed, they'll kill again, and they got away with it. So these are people who escaped justice, who should have been convicted, should have been tried, but the justice system failed for whatever reason. That would make the difference, I think, between why we, well, why we might not want to call Dexter's killings murder. Although, I mean, the, the interesting about Dexter, of course, is the show doesn't really take a clear stand on that. So when his murders are discovered, although he's not discovered, but when the bodies are found and it's discovered that these people are all criminals, many people do think, oh, well, this person's actually doing us a favour. He's exacting justice. He's not actually a murderer. But other characters in the show are less clear about that. They think that actually one of the important things that distinguishes killing from murder is that um, the state is the one who ha the state is the agent who has the right to kill criminals. So if I you know stab someone to death in a bar fight and it turns out that that person had been a murderer, it doesn't seem to make my killing him a case of justified killing. You all stopped listening halfway through that and were going, "Why did that man shoot Robocop's wife in the leg?" <laughs> <coughs> um, so this idea of justified killing is a fascinating one. Um, I often think about Batman and his life-at-all-costs motto that won't let him carry a gun. Um, so how many people has the Joker killed since his creation in 1940? Thousands more. Um, and that yet there are many comics where Batman goes out of his way to save the Joker's life. In this one you can see here on the right, the Joker is on death row for a crime he didn't commit. And so Batman proves he's innocent, even though he's guilty of you know, thousands of other crimes. So at what point does Batman's refusal to let the Joker die kind of look sort of insane? Um, which is a nice segue to the fact that at the end of season one, Dexter is told that he can't be a killer and a hero at the same time. You're not some kind of absurd avenger, he's told. And Dexter does get more overtly heroic as the series goes on, eventually even trying to become more proactive and stop killers before they kill and not just afterwards. And as Jessica said, there are plenty of people who think that the people he's killing deserve to die. So you add in Dexter's secret identity as a family man and the comic book connections between the two start to seem obvious, even to Dexter. Here he is explaining this in a season two voiceover. I never really got the whole superhero thing. But lately it does seem we have a lot in common. Tragic beginnings, secret identities, part human, part mutant, arch enemies. The Dark Defender. Nah, my is too hot for all that leather. 
First time I got high, I was 15. No, that's not right. I was 14. No, wait. I was definitely 15, because it was my freshman year. I remember now, because I was dating Susie Mitchell. We broke up because I called her by her sister Sharon's name once. She hated when people did that. She didn't know was that I had a thing for Sharon, and Sharon didn't want anything to do with me, and so. Don't you hurt my baby! Don't you dare! Look, close your eyes. Mommy loves you. you. It's okay, Mom. You're safe. So Dexter dreams himself as a superhero, revisiting his origin moment and saving himself as a child. So maybe Dexter's not the Joker. Maybe Dexter's Batman, but Batman with a body count. Um, but we get back to this question, are you a hero if you're doing the right things but for the wrong reasons? This question is posed regularly in Dexter. Even Harry's early lessons to, to Dexter are all compromises. He tells Dexter not to be a bully, but it's not because being a bully is wrong. It's because people remember bullies and Dexter needs to be forgotten. Practicalities first, moral justifications later. Um, what prevents Dexter from being a hero is that he enjoys himself. Jack Bauer hates what he has to do and that makes him a hero. Um, Dexter isn't a monster because he did what he thought was necessary. He's a monster because he needs to kill. And the fact that he limits it to just bad people is the afterthought. Um, Morgan Freeman's Detective Somerset actually makes this same argument to John Doe in Seven. He asks, if John Doe is doing God's work, doing what needs to be done then why does he enjoy it so much? And John Doe suggests this loophole, there's nothing wrong with taking pleasure in your work. Um, anyway, soon after I gave this talk last year, 24 finally went off the air after eight seasons. The final shot of the series was of Jack Bauer looking up at a spy satellite before going on the run from everyone he knew and loved. Like in The Searchers, he has too much blood on his hands to re-enter society. But um, the ending of the second last episode is may have been the one that sealed his fate. Out for revenge, Jack gets an old enemy in the scope of a sniper rifle, and just before the episode ends, we see him smile. Um, Jack's enjoying himself, and suddenly he's no better than Dexter Morgan. But all good body counts must come to an end, because it almost seems impossible for a killer to stay for any length of time without becoming cuddly, soft kind of adorable. Um, the way Michael Myers shows up for sequel after sequel is almost comforting. It's like a family dog who you lost on vacation then finds his way back to your house and you're like, Michael, it's so good to see you. Um, 
Hannibal Lecter went from being a terrifying cultural boogeyman to a sort of eccentric rock star. The movie Hannibal is like a piece of fan fiction. Even the characters in the film collect Hannibal Lecter memorabilia. Um, As an aside, though, I will say that Hannibal offers more proof that being a fan of a killer isn't going to save you. Um, Think of the reporter in Oliver Stone's Natural Born Killers and how he ends up sucking up to Mickey and Mallory. Dexter also deals with some fans inspired by his killings too. Um, We may love murderers, but it's important to remember that murderers don't love us back. Um, The fans of killers are often dismissed as pathetic wannabes by their murderous idols in these stories. Um, In 1994, Natural Born Killers by Oliver Stone became something of a sensation, a sensation that Stone captured in the film itself as his two killers in love became media heroes. But it's pretty obviously what pretty obvious what Oliver Stone thinks of the fans who like watching Mickey and Mallory. Tonight, I'm standing on Highway 666, running through towns like Cortez, Shiprock, Sheep Springs, and ending in Gallup, New Mexico. To some, a beautiful stretch of the American landscape, but to Mickey and Mallory not, who are still at large. It is literally a candy lane of murder and mayhem. Patrolman Gerald Nash was just the first of 12 peace officers that Mickey and Mallory murdered during their reign of terror. Gerald and his partner, Dale Wrigley, were parked at this donut shop, our feast donuts, when this 1970 Dodge Challenger pulled up across the street from the donut shop. Gerald was only three weeks out of the academy. Come walking out with coffee. Thanks, folks. A bear club. Hey, you. Driver, ask him a question. How the hell do you get to parking? Looked like he was giving street directions. Um, 324, take it over to 66, and Farmington's up about 65 miles. Quick ride. You folks going there? When he finished, uh-huh. we'll and waved him thanks, then up come that shotgun. <laughs> Tragic murder occurred. American bronze medalist marathon bicyclist Brian Woo! I always wanted to take a shot at one of them. They're not so easy to hit. We really raped and pillaged the first show to do this. Well, we so. changed the order around so it wouldn't be super obvious. It right? still needs a new intro, in my opinion. Who is this you guy? Can't cannibalize yourself all the time. Repetition works, shit. David. It's gonna wind up with shit. Repetition works, it, Davey. Okay. Do you think that those nitwits out there in zombie man remember anything? It's junk food for the brains. It's, you know, fill or fodder, whatever. But just fill to the interview, okay? Keep saying that word. Lies, interviews, lying gale. Anticipation, David. That's what it's all about. What do you think of Mickey and Mallory, huh? Uh, they're hot. Totally. Yeah, but uh, they're way cooler. Chuck all the great figures from the States. Elvis, uh, Jack Kerouac. James Dean. Dean. They are super cool. Nicky, c'est long. 
Nicholson and a bloody pile of nitro and you got Mickey and Mallory. I'm not saying you might believe in mass murder or that shit, but don't get us wrong. Yeah, you know, we respect human life and all. <laughs> but if I was a mass murderer, I'd be Mickey and Mallory. I love that guy's completely unconvincing. We respect human life and all, honest. Um, so to Oliver Stone, thinking Mickey and Mallory are awesome makes you a happy little postmodern idiot. Um, maybe someone who's become completely desensitised to all ideas of violence. And I have to admit that when we're preparing for a talk like this, seeing this headline pop up after a recent Red Cross study hit me a little harder than it might have otherwise. Um, anyway... The way Hannibal pauses excitedly whenever Anthony Hopkins makes another cannibalism quip is astonishingly unscary. It's like a comedian laughing at his own jokes. And Brad Pitt's Detective Mills in Seven suggests this. He says to John Doe that eventually even the scariest monster might be nothing more than a movie of the week, a fucking T-shirt. And Freddy Krueger, well, poor Freddy Krueger became so familiar after so many sequels that I'll let you experience this following news report for yourselves. Collaborator may be someone who can scare the rap out of them. Nightmare on Elm Street's Freddy Krueger. The rap group, Prince Marky D. Morales, Damon Wimbley, and the human beatbox, Darren Robinson, composed their rap as a tribute to Freddy. They're unquestionably the film series' biggest fans. And we do mean biggest. One, two, three, go. Now the place was Elm Street late one night, looking like a ghost town on his sight. Freddy Krueger himself, actor Robert Englund, comes to the shooting, still sharp, shortly after finishing work on Nightmare on Elm Street 4. Now, you can have a flip or you can have a cop. We like that. Or you wake up dead. Oh, I like the Freddy's been seen as a favorite of the heavy metal crowd, but Englund says his appearance in a rap video is, if not a natural, a supernatural anyway. Freddy's got soul now. Yes, Freddy's, Freddy's urban. He's street. He's rapping. Rap or die. The Fat Boys video, Are You Ready for Freddy?, is kind of a pilot, testing out an idea for a horror comedy film for the Fat Boys, currently carrying the working title, Fat Wolf. Now we'll have to wait for the group's heavy touring schedule, though. Work is expected to begin on that film project next summer. Dennis Michael, CNN Entertainment News. So as you can see, Freddy's love of a good one-liner turns him from a terrifying dream monster into a novelty rap song. Although, admittedly, there may be nothing more terrifying than novelty rap. I still shiver every time I see the Bartman. Um, is Dexter doomed to this same fate? Um, Dexter says he knows that killing is something that ultimately disconnects you from everyone around you and says he's incapable of change. But Dexter does change, and that's enormously risky. With each passing season, Dexter acknowledges more of the feelings he has for his family and friends. And with each passing season, the things that made Dexter unique, at least to me, seem to slip away. We might be happy for Dexter to have more connections in his life, but does it make the character less interesting to watch? Um, I do think the show is weaker now than it's in its excellent first and second seasons. Some of that's about Dexter's changing character, 
Some of it was how Rita turned from an interesting character into a one-note nag machine. And most of it is that the Metro Police become so freakishly dull. I don't think anyone signed up to watch the romantic misadventures of Angel Batista, yet they dedicate so much time to it. Now, Dexter's lost his wife and has the responsibility of two adopted children and a baby of his own. And this has led to some grimly amusing advertising material, but not much else. They quickly ship the older kids away and the baby barely registers in the narrative. A new guest star is introduced every season to do the dramatic heavy lifting. For a show that seemed to embrace change when it comes to character, I think it's perversely stuck in its own status quo. In conclusion then, you might remember that Natural Born Killers, when it came out, was accused of inspiring multiple real-life crimes. In fact, at the time, author John Grisham released a statement saying that Oliver Stone should take some responsibility for these crimes. I'll pause here so you can think up your own joke about John Grisham's crimes against literature. Has everyone got one? (laughs) Great. Um, And at the end of 2008, wannabe filmmaker and avid Dexter fan named Peter Twitchell was charged with first-degree murder. He was working on a screenplay at the time that was suspiciously close to Dexter as he was arrested. It got the show's writers worried about real-life copycats. And one of those writers, Melissa Rosenberg, said afterwards that they never meant to glorify Dexter. You may think that he's doing good, but he's a monster. He's killing because he's a monster. By the end of Dexter season two, I'd become pretty immune to Dexter's behaviour, I thought. Perhaps I'm one of those happy postmodern idiots that Oliver Stone was so worried about. Um, But then at the end of season two, they had the audience identify not with Dexter as he carved someone up, but with another character, a character forced to watch. And suddenly you remember, oh God, that's right, this is horrifying. Um, And these are the moments I like most in Dexter, um, where the show dares you to like Dexter and then slaps you with the fact that he's a monster. As Alex said when discussing slasher killers, I think we can hold two positions at once. We can be appalled and intrigued. We can feel affection and horror for Dexter at the same time. I think that season two provides the most satisfying ending to Dexter's story, and I can't quite see them pulling off something as satisfying as that again. Um, The show's got at least one more season to go, though, and I'm interested to see where it ends. Dexter's already realised that he doesn't have to kill his victims. He kills them because it's necessary, but not because he's necessarily compelled to. Dexter says that he makes his own rules, and I am prepared to wade through Angel's romances to see what those rules might be. Maybe in time, Dexter will become Jack Bauer after all. Maybe he'll even become Batman. But I wanted to end tonight by mentioning in passing one other TV killer, someone who's not becoming more safe and more cuddly with each passing season, and someone whose moral framework for his actions, the familiar refrain that he's doing it all for his family, is becoming less and less convincing with every episode. Ladies and gentlemen, Walter White from Breaking Bad, the high school chemistry teacher turned meth-dealing drug kingpin. While Dexter, to me, is becoming less complicated over time, Walter is becoming more complicated. I have a sneaking suspicion he will turn out to be the villain of Breaking Bad and not the hero. We know that he's a killer. Meet me back here in a year and we can discuss if he's still lovable. Thank you.
I have a question. Is there anyone who wants to argue with me about Dexter's downward spiral? Are the people who've been really enjoying these past few seasons as much as the initial ones, and why? <laughs> Anybody? No. Really? Yeah. I think that's alarming. <laughs> no? You can ask your own questions. I didn't mean to put you all on the spot with mine. <laughs> what about Kevin Lithgow in season three? Is he all kind of Oh, Jimmy Smith. Look, John Lithgow was amazing, and yes, that definitely echoed Dexter's character in some more interesting ways, that kind of seeing him step into another family's dynamic. But at the end of the season, I still felt like we'd hit a reset switch and I'm not sure anything changed. Like, what possible reason is there for ghost dad Harry to still be hanging around? Like, it seems kind of embarrassing at this point. I do have a soft spot for Spike. Um, I, when I heard that, I actually squealed and clapped. Um, I was just wondering what, what you think makes him so lovable. I think it's mostly performance, at least when it started. The story goes that he was never meant to be a recurring character, but he was just so charming, they just kind of kept bringing him back, even when the show transparently had no idea what to do with him. He'd kind of show up and be funny and kill somebody and then leave. Um, but it was interesting how they saw that he'd become so cuddly and neutered and tried to give him back a sense of danger mm -hmm. as the series went on. Um, I'm not sure how effectively necessarily, though. Um, how do you think the Dexter television version compares to the book series? I am a complete Philistine who has never read one of the books. <laughs> really? But I've heard that it ends up being a weird supernatural. He's got a demon inside him. This sounds terrible, people. Tell me it's not. Okay. All right. All right. I'll be convinced. I haven't read Silence of the Lambs either. In fact, I've, you know, so to hell with you, literature. Mm. Um, are there any, like, really famous villains in movies or TV that like, I guess have not been critically acclaimed but they've been successful for one reason or another that are really popular for, you know, one reason or another but you think are just really lame and why? <laughs> Ooh, that's difficult. I'm sure other people have probably got some examples of this stuff. Look, I'm, I thought the first two Scream movies were pretty great and I thought the new one was pretty embarrassing. So if their goal was to, you know, shine a light on crappy horror sequels by making a crappy horror sequel, that's a little too meta for me. Um, I don't know, it's difficult. It's difficult with the, I was trying to think of what's the actual scariest film I've seen, and I recently rewatched Funny Games, the Michael Haneke film. Have people seen this? For those of you who haven't, you really should. It's basically like a Scream movie, but with all the comforting kind of um, horror conventions stripped out. Two young guys show up at a house and just torture a family for an hour and a half. And um, not in a sore way, in a really horrible psychological way. There are whole ten-minute scenes of the family basically just crying. And um, it's incredibly difficult to watch. And that's what made me think that 
Michael Myers, Michael Myers seems almost friendly now. So I don't know, is there a character that stayed frightening over a really long period of time? I throw this to the audience. I didn't see the new, the remake. Is the remake of Nightmare on Elm Street good? Really? Take that, Freddie. Bob is genuinely terrifying. Yes, I will happily back you up on that. I don't even think you can call him a murderer killer in this same thing. He's from a whole different world of movies, a world I do not wish to visit. <laughs> Anyone else? Um, so do you sort of have an opinion on the relationship between um, these kind of, you know, human murderer killers and the sort of recent spate of vampires and inhumane murderer killers and kind of do you, do you think the audience has the same relationship to them hmm, that's a good question um certainly we've had a lot of the, the vampires who don't kill the vampires who drink blood from the butcher and everything else um going right back to Anne Rice I'm not sure if there are any examples before then um I'm honestly not sure if people see them as any different I think we draw a pretty clear line between what's real and what's fictional. So I don't think there's that much difference between Dexter and the Joker and a vampire character, necessarily. I don't think the supernatural element really changes the dynamic of how that works. Um, certainly, like, throwing up the occasional image of real-life serial killers makes it quite obvious that there's a massive gulf between the high-art fictional ones where serial killers are always inspired by 17th-century portraiture or something <laughs> and the real-life serial killers who are just enormously creepy. Hey, Martin. Um, you mentioned that the ca character of Dexter goes downhill somewhat as the show goes on. Do you think that was inevitable, given the amount of time given to exploring this killer character? Or do you think it would have been possible and that the creators of the show just weren't quite there on the ball? I think it would have been possible. I think there's been some really interesting ideas. The first episode of the latest season I thought was really strong. Um, and the idea of him being this perfect father who will do anything to protect his children, even if it means murdering people, is quite a powerful idea. But the show just seems to skirt around this and keep moving through the same patterns. So I'm not sure. I'm not sure if built into the fact of six seasons is the luster's going to come off a character. I always think characters should get more interesting as they go along and not less. I know that's hard to do sometimes. I'm not sure if this show can pull it off. While I ask you, do you think if uh, do you think murder is ever going to go out of fashion on TV? No, no, it's too useful. It's absolutely too useful just to move things along. Everything from Twin Peaks to Pacific Drive start their show with a murder. Like it's just such an easy gambit to get things going. Don't please don't let the whole night end with me mentioning Pacific Drive. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> lucky last. Pacific Drive it is. Sold. <laughs> Thank you so much, Martin, for coming back. Thanks, everybody. Thank you to Simon and Biobots and Simon also helping with microphones. Thank you. Thank you.